tonight, opening up the Word of God before we open up the Institutes. Um, we turn to Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 18. Good to see you, Richard. Must have taken you longer to get out of the parking garage than drive here. All right, Acts 14 and verse 8. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lycania, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas, Jupiter, and Paul Mercurius, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do, ye, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways, Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness, in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people, and they had not done sacrifice unto them. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. I can move something here. So it's blocking my copy of the scriptures. All right. Well, if you've read the chapter in, in the Institutes, you know that Calvin teaches that benevolence, God's benevolence to all men is meant to lead them to piety or religion, right? And this is a function of what uh, is called natural revelation. Uh, in chapter three, so the next chapter, Calvin will speak about the sensus um, divinitatis, right? That natural sense of divinity that all men share. And he's going to teach that by nature, this sense is perverted and it's corrupted. And what we have here is a, a key text to sort of establish these principles, uh, principles that he teaches in our chapter. Um, the first is that though God does good to the unjust and the just alike, right, to all men, man is idolatrous by nature and he ascribes his blessings to what? Idols. He ascribes his blessings to luck chance, fortune, right? These things that we often attribute um, the good things that happen to us. In verse 11, right, we have benevolence that comes from God through a man, right? Now attributed to the man himself. The people say the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men, right? So there's a healing of a man. And what do people do when they see the benevolence of God? They start to worship the creature rather than the creator, right? Who does that? That's idolatry. And that's something that we often, uh, all men do by nature. Um, but benevolence 
that is done to us, our hearts are meant to be thankful to the true God, right? But we don't glorify the true God. This is what Calvin will establish as his thesis. We don't glorify the true God for his benevolence. But look at the exhortation in verse 15, right? We are men of like passions with you. And what do they preach? Preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things therein. Now, this first book in the Institutes is of God as what? What's that? No, God as creator, creator, right? Second will be book two, book the second will be God as redeemer. And it's, isn't it interesting that Paul begins here with these um, men by saying that you need to turn to the living God who is the creator, who's God the creator. He doesn't even bring redemption into the picture. He comes to them with God as the creator. And um, what's interesting here is in verse 16, he, he says, uh, who in times past, this creator God, suffered all nations to walk in their own ways, right? That's our guilt, that we walk in our own ways and not whose ways? God's ways, right? That's, that's our guilt. And in times past, he suffered all nations to walk uh, in their own ways, but he has a witness. He has been witnessing to them. And what is that witness in verse 17? Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness. And this is where Calvin's thesis in chapter 2 begins, in that not only is, is God God, but he does good to all, right? That he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. I just thought that this is such a wonderful witness that the Lord has, right? That all good things, this is the doctrine of common grace, of course, that God does good to all men. And these are purposeful works, right? When, when our hearts are full with food and gladness, when we get rain from heaven and fruitful seasons in the land, right, we are meant to see that as a witness to the living God, to the true God, right? Um, it's all a witness to Jehovah, the living God. But what do they need, right? Is that enough? No. In verse um, 15, God has to be preached, right? We're going to need special revelation so that you know who the living God is and that he isn't idolatrous. And that's the, the, the tension that Calvin will deal with in due course, right? That all men know that there is a God, that he is good, he does good to all, but unless you have this true God preached to you out of the word of God, you will ascribe all of your blessings to idols. Um, though, uh, what, is, what does Paul say? that the goodness of God is meant to lead you to repentance, right? Repentance. And what is repentance? It's a turning, isn't it? And a turning to who? God. God. Very good. Right. It's a turning to God. It's not just, you know, sometimes we think of it as just leaving our sin behind, which there's a component of that, but it's a turning to God. And so you see how these things all come together. Um, and what's, so wonderful here is that the witness of God is very simple and very basic. And sometimes we forget it in our sophistication. And Paul's going to, not Paul, Calvin's going to contend against sophistication of a sort. But really, you can sum up this witness in what? Uh, three words God is good, right? It's really that simple. God is good, right? God is good. That's so fascinating that that's where Paul begins that the goodness of God. 
And that is what leads us to repentance when the true God is preached. So what we ought never do is forget that our God is good and he does good to us. He does good to all. And all of that goodness, whatever we receive is meant that we would turn to God and find all our blessings in him. And that we would turn to this God for salvation as well, which is uh, what we will get to in due course in the institutes. But in fact, what did our savior say? There is none good, right? But God, right? There's one only who is good, who is God. And if we would see that then, right, we would find that we would seek this God who is good, who alone is good for all things that are good, right? Which is where Calvin will go with that. All right. Um, And we would cheerfully seek him and serve him. All right, let's pray as we open up our study time. Our Father and our God, what a wonderful thing it is to remember that God is good. We thank you for your goodness, for it has given to us a Savior, a Savior that sinners do not deserve. And you have given such wonderful gifts to all men. Uh, The just and the unjust alike receive food. They receive children. They receive rain. They receive many blessings, and their hearts are often so full of gladness. And yet we often, Father, are guilty of ascribing our goodness to idols, to chance and fortune and luck. And so we never seek you out, Father, for all the blessings that are found in Jesus Christ. Forgive us of that, Father. And as we come now to study uh, this work, which uh, was written so long ago by a man that was certainly blessed with many gifts. We pray that we would not find our glory in John Calvin tonight, but in the truths of God that come out of the word of God, that a man filled with the Holy Spirit was able to teach the church of Jesus Christ. Help us to be Bereans and let us consider whether or not the things which this man has written are so ever giving glory to God for every truth that we find. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so chapter two, section one, what it is to know God. So our goal tonight is simple. It's to discuss chapter two, and this is one of the shorter chapters in the Institutes. It's really just two pages in my edition anyway, and it's divided into two sections. And uh, um, so this is what we will try to accomplish tonight. And it should be a, a relatively straightforward, I think, chapter, which is sort of a bridge to chapter three is going to have a lot of meaty things in it. So for discussion, and assuming that you've read the second chapter, just wanted to see if there's anything that really stood out to you, that was encouraging to you or challenging to you. Um, Were there any things that just sort of leapt off the page? Uh, Pastor Ram, I I think about your sermon where you talked about meditating and praising God for all his good works. Um, I think this chapter kind of points us that and re- reinforces what you were preaching on um, Sunday. Yeah, Psalm 111. I thought the very same thing. I thought how uh, providential that the same doctrine was being taught. Amen. Um, amen. Anything else? You noted that God is first... We, we first see God as our creator, and and then we can see him as our savior. Mm. And uh, I, I see that so so much in just the real world. Like, oh, I believe in God. Like, like there's this nominalism that's present, but nobody takes it to the next step of 
God's also my savior, right? They don't even acknowledge they need mm. anything from anything. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, I love that you brought that out because the fact, actually, we'll get to it, but I'll, I'll leave that there because we'll talk about that. That's that's an excellent point. That that's where we begin. Uh, always God is creator. Um, that we are, are not ourselves, right? We, we live and move and have our being in God. And uh, that's a good place to start. And men recognize that. Okay. Anything else that was insightful that Calvin expressed? All right. Um, here's a, another question, maybe. Um, did you note how practical, again, Calvin is? You know, he, he's always giving like pastoral exhortations to us, isn't he? Uh, it's not just explaining the doctrine. This chapter would be very short if it was just an explanation of the doctrine. Mm-hmm. But it's, he gives several exhortations on where we find our blessedness, how to use God as our, our blessed creator, and the source and fountain of all that is good. So I think that's something to take away as you continue to go through the institutes is look at how um, practical a book it is. It's not just a book on doctrine for the sake of doctrine. He's actually going to address that in this very chapter. Okay, so he's going to start with the knowledge of God. And he begins it by uh, the chapter by explaining this by the knowledge of God. I understand that by which we not only conceive that there is some God, but also apprehend what it is for our interest and conducive to his glory, what in short it is befitting to know concerning him. Okay. So the question comes, what is it that is befitting to know of God, according to just this opening statement of his? I'm sorry, Oh, yeah, yeah. What is it? uh, Sorry. uh, What is it that is befitting to know of God according to this? What is for our interest in peace? Yes. Did you have something, Danny? I'll just say, I think that how we ought to worship him or glorify him, I guess you could say. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Um, Absolutely. And I think that's where we even noted how practical Calvin is, right? It's not about, you know, like some of the medieval scholastics would have just sort of uh, very much just a purely philosophical scheme. Again, I've said there's nothing wrong with scholasticism as a as a system in terms of, of doing theology. But often our, our thoughts are not on what is needful to know about God, what is for our interest and what is conducive to his glory. Right. These are very practical matters. Um, and that's what he, he says, what is for our interest and what is conducive to his glory. Um, you know, one of the, the, the questions is then, what distinguishes the Christian's interest in the knowledge of God from the philosophers? You know, from time immemorial since the fall, there have been philosophers trying to teach something about God, right? What is it then that's different about the Christian's interest in the knowledge of God from the philosophers. The interest uh, tied to his glory, right? Um, very much so. Um, so he's not just uh, maybe a being to dissect, right? He's not just a being to sort of figure out what he is um, just in terms of his essence. And I think Calvin will talk about that too. We're just not interested in knowing what God's essence is. We actually want to know how to glorify God and what we need to know of God for our own interest, 
as well. And how does our shorter catechism boys and girls uh, talk about that? What's the first question and answer? What's the answer? Yes, see, you see that right here. That thought is expressed, right? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him. You can put that in conducive to his glory and what is for our interest, right? Okay, now the apostle Paul kind of has the same concept in 2 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science or knowledge falsely so called which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. See, it's the same kind of idea here. And I, I think it's important to see how Calvin actually interprets that for, uh, for us. And I think this is right. Um, so I think what I will do is uh, maybe we can, uh, I'll read part of it. So, and contradictions of science falsely so-called. This also is highly exact and elegant. For so swollen are the subtleties on which men desirous of glory plume themselves, is language, I love it, that they overwhelm the real doctrine of the gospel, which is simple and unpretending. That pomp, therefore, which courts display and which is received with applause by the world is called by the apostle contradictions. Ambition, indeed, is always contentious and is the mother of disputes. And hence it arises that they who are desirous to display themselves are always ready to enter into the arena of debate on any subject. But Paul had this principally in view, that the empty doctrine of the sophists rising aloft into airy speculations and subtleties not only obscures by its pretensions the simplicity of true doctrine, but also oppresses and renders it contemptible as the world is usually carried away by outward show. We're going to talk about that a bit later in chapter one, uh, two. Paul does not mean that Timothy should be moved by emulation to attempt something of the same kind, but because those things which have an appearance of subtlety or are adapted to ostentation, are more agreeable to human curiosity, Paul, on the contrary, pronounces that science, quote-unquote, which exalts itself above the, here it is, plain and humble doctrine of godliness, to be falsely called and thought a science. This ought to be carefully observed, that we may learn boldly to laugh at and despise all that hypocritical wisdom which strikes the world with admiration and amazement, although there is no edification in it. For according to Paul, no science is truly and justly so called, but that which instructs us in the confidence and fear of God, that is, in godliness, which is really the aim of, uh, you can see this chapter of the Institutes, right? Plain and humble doctrine of godliness. In other words, godliness is the aim of edification. And godliness is defined as that which instructs us in the confidence and fear of God, according to Calvin, which you'll see again in this chapter. Uh, what do we read of in 2 Timothy 3.7? Ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth, right? There's a sense in which we can be learning even about God, but never come to the knowledge of the truth, which is to give us confidence and fear of God. All right. Now, for properly speaking, so going back to the Institutes, we cannot say that God is known where there is no religion or piety. And I think that that is fantastic in contradistinction to the philosophers, right? What does, if you have the Institutes or you remember, what is it that Calvin means by piety in, in this chapter? Or in the first section, I think he defines it at the end. That meaning of reverence and love to God, which the knowledge of his benefits inspires. For mm. men feel that they owe everything to God, that they are cherished by his paternal care, and that he is the author of all their blessings, so that naught is to be looked away from him. 
or away from him. They will never submit to him in voluntary obedience. No, unless they place their entire happiness in him, they will never yield up them whole selves to him in truth and sincerity. Very good. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful sense he gives of what piety is, right? Because piety gets a bad name. And sometimes it does, rightly so, you think of pietism, right? But piety is a good thing. And so it's it's really wonderful then that, you know, Warren's read it. God, we cannot say God is known where there is no religion or piety. That is a wonderful expression because uh, we may even have a copy of the Institutes and the Bible, right? In every classroom and maybe even in Congress. But if there's no exercise of religion, God is actually not known, right? You may have the scriptures, you may have that, um, but unless there is reverence and love to God, which the knowledge of his benefits inspires to us, we will not submit to him in voluntary obedience. I think that's important. We'll cover that later on. But the obedience that we have to have to this God is voluntary. Uh, And it only happens when we place our entire happiness in him, in him. And, uh, as I said, we'll get to that later, but thank you for that definition. It's very, very important um, to understanding Calvin. Huh? Thank Calvin. Well, thank you for bringing it out. Um, now he wants to, now, so going back to the, the front part of section one, he says, I'm not now referring to that species of knowledge by which men in themselves lost and under curse apprehend God as a redeemer in Christ, the mediator. I speak only of that simple and primitive knowledge to which the mere course of nature would have conducted us had Adam um, stood upright. So the question is, according to Calvin, what kind of knowledge could Adam know of God before the fall? So this is important, right? God reveals himself progressively. And so in the time of the fall, before the fall, rather, what could Adam have known of God? God is creator. Yeah. Can only be creator because you can't be known as a savior if you don't need salvation. That's exactly right. Very good. Um, and uh, so God is creator. Uh, you could also see God as governor, right? He's the governor of providences. And so he would be the governor of providence. Um, Calvin, love and goodness. Very good. Um, so he first says, no man will now in the present ruin of the human race perceive God to be either a father or the author of salvation or propitious in any respect until Christ interposed to make us our peace. So we'll talk about that in a bit. But still, it is one thing to perceive that God, our maker, supports us by his power, rules us by his providence, fosters us by his goodness, and visits us with all kinds of blessings, right? And then he'll say it's another thing to embrace the grace of reconciliation Uh, offered to us in Christ. So Adam could know God as his maker, as you all have said, that he was supporting Adam by his power, that he ruled over him by providence, that he gave all those, all that goodness in the garden of Eden came from the hand of God. And he visited Adam with all kinds of blessings, right? Who brought him Eve? God did, right? It's not good that the man would be alone. And God, uh, he could know that much about God. But can man after the fall recognize these things why or why not spiritually dead what's that 
spiritually dead spiritually dead right and he says that that's what calvin is saying until christ interposed to make our peace right we will not perceive god as the source of all good things right you know in this nation i i think i mentioned this to you you know once i had a bible study had an unbeliever come and it was right before thanksgiving and he said i'm just very thankful and i asked to who who are you thankful to and it just he'd never actually considered the question right who are you thankful to uh you're thank you have to be thankful to the living god who gives you all these things right because we are spiritually dead now um is going to the next slide okay so what is it here's a good sort of thought exercise what can we know about god after the fall that adam could not before the fall and so this is going a little bit off of the institutes but i think it's a vital question to ask in other words is there a benefit to the fall concerning our knowledge of god yes he's very compassionate merciful right um, god the redeemer god as redeemer absolutely all the same things but in a heightened way okay in a heightened way why is it that um that it's in a heightened way because it's through christ okay it's through christ okay and there's a contrast because if you are only if you're always in the good graces of somebody uh in a human sense then you don't know the extent of their love mm. like very when, good like just the simple things that God provides to us, we don't realize. Like when the first thing that happened after the fall is Adam and Eve realized that they were naked. What did God provide as as a grace after that was clothing, mm -hmm. and that is something that they couldn't comprehend until it was provided to them. Yeah, very good, excellent. You guys are are certainly on the right the right path there. For all the known, uh, so that's what we had just read. And then so added to that at the bottom, still, it is one thing to perceive that God, our maker, supports us by his power, providence, goodness, visits us all kinds of blessings. And another thing to embrace the grace of reconciliation offered to us in Christ. So there's benefits here. You think about this, right? You see God now as your father by way of adoption, right? That he brings in sinners into his home, that he is the author of salvation, that he is propitious, that he is merciful, that he is ready to forgive right? Christ come as the God-man, as, uh, as y'all mentioned, uh, to make us, to give us peace with God, right? So that we perceive in Jesus Christ, the very image of God. And, you know, you think of texts like Romans 9, 22 and 23. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. And Romans 5, 8, which was mentioned, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we have to ask ourselves, could Adam have known any of these things about God? No, right? And so the riches of God's mercy, the riches of God's love, the wrath and power of God that we deserve, though we have received mercy instead in Christ, we could never have known that without the fall of man. And so we are to bless the Lord for the fall, right? We wouldn't have Christ if it wasn't for the fall. And we really wouldn't have seen the love of God in such a heightened way. See, uh, somebody said, we do see the love of God in the, in, the, in the creation in Eden, but we don't see the fullness of the love of God until the fall comes and Christ is slain in our place.
And so there is this knowledge of God that is heightened after the fall that Adam could actually never have had. And I think that that's a wonderful and glorious. Okay, then he continues and he says there's a twofold knowledge of God. Since then, the Lord first appears as well in the creation of the world as in general doctrine, the general doctrine of scripture simply as a creator and afterwards as a redeemer in Christ, a twofold knowledge of him hence arises. Of these, the former is now to be considered, the latter will afterward follow in his or in its order. And so first, God as creator, second, God as redeemer. And that's what we consider in book one, right, is that we consider God the creator, book two, God the redeemer. So what's this twofold knowledge of God that Calvin speaks of? Knowledge of him as creator and in the sea. Where does that knowledge come from? Okay. Now, God is creator. Does it come solely from scripture? God is creator comes from general revelation. Okay. Salvation comes from scripture. Yes, that's very good. And uh, um, so does the scripture speak anything about creation? Okay. So scripture speaks of creation and redemption. Uh, general revelation speaks just of creation then. Um, but both have to be interpreted by what? Scripture, right? Scripture. So, um, but he sets the order in place, right? Even in the, the Bible, how does the order begin? Creation. creation first, right? So that's the order that God intends for us to have is what Calvin is saying that all men need to know when they pick up the word of God, Genesis one, right? God is creator. Like that's the very order of the Bible. It's not just the order of natural revelation, but natural revelation, uh, special revelation matches the order that all men have, which is God as creator first. And that's why Calvin organizes the institutes this way is that he sees this pattern in the scripture and in nature itself, right? God is creator. So very good. I thought that was just very insightful, though, of him to tie that not just to the heavens declare the glory of God, but even Genesis 1 declares the glory of God through creation. Okay. Now, he continues, but although our mind cannot conceive of God without rendering some worship to him, it will not, however, be sufficient to simply hold uh, that he is the only being whom all ought to worship and adore. And I thought this is such a pastoral and insightful and God-glorifying doctrine, unless we are also persuaded that he is the fountain of all goodness and that we must seek everything in him and in none but him, right? I think you can meditate on that for a very long time, right? That uh, our minds conceive of God, right? And we do want to render some worship, all men around the earth worship, right? idols unless they know the living God out of the scripture, but they in some manner want to render worship to God, but it's not sufficient simply to hold he's the only being whom all ought to worship and adore unless we are persuaded that he is the fountain of all good and we must seek everything in him and in none but him. I think that that's worthy of a great meditation. So if you are persuaded uh, God is the fountain of all goodness, what are the only reasonable actions on our part? glorifying him yeah thanking him okay very uh, good i i would say pastor uh romans 12 1 and 2 to offer mm. as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is our our spiritual service of worship yes and, and to not be conformed to the world but to to the image of christ transform okay. 
Okay. Yep. Very good. Uh, we ought to render our whole lives as a service to God. Um, what are some of the other things that you might think of? Many good things that I desire that I don't pray for. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. He's like not actually believe that if it's good, it only comes from him. Yeah. You know, um, what even the world has that terrible saying, right? Like, uh, God is the last refuge of the scoundrel, right? Like, we don't go to God first, right? We go to God when there's nobody else to, to help. Um, you know, we'll go and we'll try everything. We'll try it ourselves. We'll do this, that, the other. And then it's like, well, I guess I'm out of ideas. I'll try God. Um, it's the way that that usually goes. But even the Christian has the same problem. Uh, we often don't go to God first. Um, we we often neglect even, you know, think of the Lord's Prayer, the fourth petition, right? Give us this day our daily bread, right? We often just assume that the bread will be there. Maybe we even thank God for it, but we are not pleading for it, you know, seeing him as the fountain of all good. So I think you guys, uh, those are some wonderful, wonderful ways to practically apply that doctrine. Um, you can see even here, you know, the scripture says, I will give you rain in due season and the land shall yield her increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. All this comes from the hand of God. He continues, my meaning is we must be persuaded not only that as he once formed the world, so he sustains it by his boundless power. So providence governs it by his wisdom, preserves it by his goodness in particular rules the human race with justice and judgment, bears with them in mercy, shields them by his protection, but also that not a particle of light or wisdom or justice or power or rectitude as righteousness or genuine truth will anywhere be found which does not flow from him and of which he is not the cause. So this is that total sovereignty of God, that God is utterly the one who gives all good things, right? Whatever we, we know is good in this world, it comes from him. Not a particle of light, right, does not arise from God in whom there is no shadow at all. Yeah, yeah, I guess he did. Um, and so this is what you all were talking about. In this way, we must learn. So actually, that's something we need to learn to expect and ask all things from him and thankfully ascribe to him whatever we receive. And if we would recognize and remember that, that God is the fountain of goodness, like even when he created, right, what did he call the creation? Good. Right? Again, going back to Psalm 111, it's because he is good that his works are good. Right. And so our learning would come from knowing that anything good comes from God and that we are to expect and ask all things from him. And ascribe to him thankfully whenever we receive, which we're also guilty of as well, right? We don't often thank the Lord. Psalm 145, verse 9, the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works, right? And this is the, the sad case of the reprobate is that they don't recognize that Jehovah is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. But so what is man's sinful suspicion of the almighty in contrast to the doctrine that was being taught by Calvin. And the hint is it was a portion of Satan's temptation of Eve. He's not good. That he's not good. He's that he's always withholding good, right? That he's always withholding good. 
That's all the temptation, right? For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods knowing good and evil. Like there's always this nagging suspicion that God is not good to us, right? And that's man's um, fallen condition is to always think that the almighty, whatever he does, right? Uh, again, we go to Job's wife, right? Curse God and die, right? Like even that difficulty uh, we see is not good from God. Uh, that God is not good in those things, but God is good in those things if we are his children. And so what we need to do is put that away, that we need to never be suspicious of the Almighty, that whatever he is uh, doing is 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 not good, and that the things that we need, we can only get from God, right? Sorry, this is kind of small on the television here. Um for this sense of the divine perfections is the proper master to teach us piety. So we've heard the definition of piety, out of which religion springs. By piety, I mean that union of reverence and love to God, which the knowledge of his benefits inspires. Right? Knowing that God is good inspires in us reverence and love to God. And until men feel they owe everything to God, that they are cherished by his paternal care and that he is the author of all their blessings, so that naught is to be looked for away from him. They will never submit to him in voluntary obedience. Nay, unless they place their entire happiness in him, they will never yield up their whole, their whole selves to him in truth and sincerity. I think that's just one, another one of those really wonderful quotes in the, in the Institutes, right? Until we feel that we owe everything to God and that we are cherished by his fatherly care, the author of all our blessings and not is to be looked for away from him, like nothing we should look for away from God until we come to that place, right? We will never submit to him. And in what kind of obedience? Voluntary, right? Until we put our happiness, how much of our happiness? All of our happiness in him. We will never yield up our whole selves to him in truth and sincerity. You know, it's very uh, good that, um, Danny had mentioned Romans 12, right? Because what's the structure, the overall three-part structure of the book of Romans, if you could summarize it in three words? All salvation and Christian religion. Okay, yeah, yeah. And the memorable way, like like the Heidelberg expresses Guilt, that, great right? gratitude. Exactly, very good, <laughs> very good, right? Guilt, our guilt, then the grace of God, and then gratitude is what summarizes Romans 12 and on, right? is that out of gratitude to God, I give and I render my whole life, right, service to God. That's the only, and it's really, you know, as the King James puts it, it's the Christian's reasonable service, right? It's what's reasonable. And it's the only thing that's reasonable is to render service to God. And so if your entire happiness were found in God, what are the results that you would see in your life? Just it's just a question. What kind of, what would you see in your life if all of your happiness were found in God? Never be blessedness. There we go. Um, you don't find happiness in anything in the world, basically. Mm. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. They're just no, you know, they don't put that smile on your face that uh, things of the Lord will, you don't find joy uh, here. Not, I mean, that's not like, that's too broad. I think. But generally speaking, your joy comes from the Lord and not things mm. far. 
Yeah, because even those things that you enjoy in the world, right? Those good laws. Oh, yeah. Like you've recognized him as the fountain of all of that, right? Yeah. Um, and then that's why you say, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? And so yeah, you find contentment. What's that? You find contentment in all things. You find contentment in every circumstance, right? As the apostle did, right? Mm-hmm. He's learned how to be content in every circumstance um, um, because his happiness is in God. Yeah. Uh, Pastor Ram, I I can't remember if I heard it from you, but I'm going to credit you. (laughs) Um, True peace. Mm. You find true peace Mm -hmm. in that. Not not false hope or or false peace, but true peace. Mm. Yeah, very good. Yeah. And and he also speaks here of, uh, I think it's good to meditate on, you know, that idea of voluntary obedience. I think is is very helpful, right? You know, a lot of times people look at Christians who want to follow the commandments of God and they might call them legalists, right? And that would be very true if uh, it was all external and for men, right, to see. But voluntary obedience is really the Christian's only reasonable service to God is to, from the heart, right? What did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments, right? Um, and where does that love begin? Did it begin in your heart? No, it began in God's, didn't it? Uh, and really, that means it never began. Uh, it's always been there in the heart of God, which is that he first loved us. Uh, and then uh, we are given a heart to love God. And when we see him as the source of all of our happiness, then voluntary obedience results uh, we in loss, right? We've talked about this. You think of the scripture, Job's happiness wasn't found in his condition. It was found in God. He even says, I know my redeemer lives, right? It's going a bit further, but um, I think it's worth understanding. All right. Chapter one, section two. As we continue on. Ah, oh, that's really small. Um, I'll read it. Those therefore who in considering this question, proposed to inquire what the essence of God is, only delude us with frigid speculations. It being much more our interest to know what kind of being God is and what things are agreeable to his nature. For of what use is it to join Epicures in acknowledging some God who has cast off the care of the world and only delights himself in ease? What avails it, in short, to know a God with whom we have nothing to do? I think that that is a a wonderful sort of trumpet blast, if you'd like, against the philosophers. What is it that Calvin might be thinking of when he speaks of frigid speculations? Even that phrase, maybe, if you'd like to unpack it. Unfeeling. Unfeeling speculations. Like there's no heart. It's cold. There's no heart for the one you're, you're speculating on, I suppose. Okay. The term speculation is just mm. like we talked earlier, it's just figure out God and move on. Right, right. Some other science, some other thing to dissect and very good. Check that yeah. we dissected. Okay. Um any other thoughts on that? Um Pastor Ram, is is this an extension? Um, I don't see it in the copy that we have. The those therefore we don't have April and I don't have it in our copy. I think they're using a different version. Um, I don't. Yes, yeah, a section two. Um, which edition are you using? Are you using beverage? 
Uh, it, it's the one that I showed you that was an app. It was an just on. Oh, app. I don't know if that. I don't know. Um, if somebody has battles, maybe does somebody have battles? The one that you can get on Monergism has this section. Okay, so I don't know that edition. Sorry, brother. Okay, well we're gonna have to invest in a better one then. Okay. It's free on, uh, Monergism. Monergism has a free edition of beverage. So if you go to monergism.com. Thank you, brother. Yeah. So, um, okay. So they, they dilute us with frigid speculations. What is important though, to know about God, according to Calvin here? Mm. Yes. So things, what, what is it about the being of God? Then if you could connect that to the things that are agreeable to his nature, that is important to know. Um, Maybe. Yeah. Phrase or like what things are agreeable to his nature. Like it sounds like like the things agreeable to my nature, like the snacks that I like. But oh, obviously yeah, right. Like, what, right. I'm just confused. What yeah, I think you could probably talk about things like what kind of being God is and what things are agreeable to his nature, right? Uh, we talked about um, um, even in the sermon on Psalm 111 that. Uh, to know and understand me that I exercise loving kindness, you know, the, the attributes of God, what kind of being he is in that way, as in terms of his, uh, his character and his being who he is, right? Those are, I think, the things that are that are most necessary to know. Um, obviously, he's not going to discount that we need to know that he is triune and, and those things as well. But um, we need to know what kind of being God is and the things that are agreeable to his nature. We need to know things like that he is a God who is concerned with his people, right? He's a God who's afar off, but also near, that he is uh, transcendent, but also imminent in Christ, right? Those are the things that really matter to the people of God, right? Those are the things that we need to know about God. Connecting that probably to the error of the Epicureans helps you understand. Exactly. Because what they say is disagreeable to his nature, theism. That's right. Yeah, you, you know, um, you can get that out of here. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Epicureans, but um, what is Epicureanism then? You kind of opened that up a little bit. I don't know like, the definition. Sure, me. sure. Like, I think uh, it's even in the name, and I'm not sure I never made this connection, but is curious a part of the root word? Like this I, actually don't, I actually don't know the, the way this part. But more of like the... But it's a philosopher's name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's the deistic um, yes. mentality of the yeah. Epicureans. Basically, it is a, comes from uh, Epicurus, basically the Greek philosophy that uh, we would probably call hedonism today. Yes. It's just focus on chief end of man is to maximize one's pleasure mm -hmm. and self gratification in this life. Yeah. Yeah. Because God is just on the world like a clock and life. Yeah, so deism. Yeah, before. that's right. That's very good. Um, yeah, it's uh, uh, you. You all are. You started a. Yeah, he doesn't have anything to do with his creation. Um, yeah, it's uh, hedonism. It's freedom from um, pain and anxiety. Uh, it actually teaches very specifically in contrast to the Bible, not to fear God. And uh, um, so I think what's very interesting about that, I'll, I'll talk about it in, in just a moment. You guys summarized it. Uh, it is very much sort of a hedonistic 
kind of philosophy, which is very different from um, what the Bible teaches, but also it advocates very clearly that one must not fear God and not fear death. And we're going to deal with that in just a bit. Um, I did want to talk about, well, I'll, I'll deal with frigid speculations another time as we get to the doctrine of scripture. But um, I thought this was very fascinating. Here's an Epicurean epitaph on a tomb. I was not, I was, I am not, I do not care. This is their philosophy. And their uh, tetrapharmakos, their four cures in Epicurean philosophy, summarizes the key points of their ethics. First point, don't fear God. Number two, don't worry about death. What is good is easy to get. What is terrible is easy to endure question would be, is this uh, philosophy prevalent today? Yes. Yes. Right. You, you almost think that this is like emblazoned in our national charter. Um, don't fear God. Don't worry about death. What is good is easy to get. <laughs> what is, te- especially with a credit card and what is terrible is easy to endure. Um, I, I, I forgot. Excuse me. Well, Danny, were you going to say something? Sorry, Pastor Rome. I, I forgot what um, philosopher, Greek philosopher it was that said it, that the ultimate goal was death, to, to leave the body behind or something like that. I can't remember. It's been so long since I've, I've heard that, but that was their whole philosophy. That's part, maybe part of the reason why they don't fear God. Or... I think the last part got cut off, but I think I got the gist there. So this is uh, their philosophy actually even more expanded. So they, I think they had 40 points, but the first four, are, I think, are the key. A happy. So this is their doctrine of God. And I think we need to actually understand this because uh, Calvin is actually, this part of the Institutes, this chapter or this section, actually, if you don't understand this, you won't really understand what he's saying in contrast to the Epicurean philosophy. A happy and eternal being has no trouble himself. So God eternally blessed, right? And brings no trouble upon any other being. Hence, he is exempt from movements of anger and partiality, for every such movement implies weakness. In other words, right, God, if he were blessed, right, would be exempt from movements of anger and partiality, because in his view here, every such movement implies weakness. And so what is that trying to make you not fear? judgment right wrath of god right it's a philosophy that goes completely against god right so it's not just you know today we use the expression epicurious right for saying that we like food right because that's a a expression of hedonism often but this is actually completely and violently against the true god is what this philosophy is two death is nothing to us for the body when has been resolved into its elements has no feeling and that which has no feeling is nothing to us. Now you understand the tombstone, right? Or the, the epitaph. I don't care that I'm dead. Do you see that philosophy at work today? Yeah. Yeah. Motivates only people to live for the present life. For the present life, right? There's no no care for what comes after. Be married or whatever for today. Tomorrow we die, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, assisted suicide, right, yeah. has now come to the fore. 
right? It has this very same philosophy. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, that's where my mind went immediately is, is this, this is now, you know, part of our thinking, right? That we're all matter and we will stop feeling any pain. Now what's sadly, especially number one and two, right? What's the reality here? Like that man who put that epitaph on his tombstone, what's the true reality of number one and two? Exactly. Right. There's judgment. judgment. He does care. Yeah. And, and now, you know, death after death, there is pain. um, If you're not in Christ, the magnitude of pleasure reaches its limit in the removal of all pain. When pleasure is present, so long as it is uninterrupted, there is no pain either of body or mind or of both together. You see, this is where that idea of hedonism comes in, right? Is you you seek pleasure in order to remove all pain. Yeah. The charismatics have a similar philosophy. Okay. Where they take a similar philosophy and apply it with the main argument. Uh, like, don't feel sick, don't claim sick, don't be sick. And you're right. Fine. Right. It's interesting how... Uh, God designed our bodies to to basically go against that doctrine. The more like the more pleasure you 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 chase after, the less it's less fulfilling. It yes, the last bit, That's why people go down these crazy, mm-hmm. go to harder and harder drugs. Yeah, and our, our bodies are designed to basically reject the pleasure after a while. So yeah, you could even say, as Noah is saying, that this philosophy has been tested and found wanting, right? And uh, still men continue to pursue it today. And in fact, it's very interesting, right? In Acts 17, when we opened up last week, right? Um, some of the philosophers were saying, what is the strange doctrine of the resurrection to Paul, right? Because their philosophy is body is dead, it is done, right? And Paul is saying, no, your body is coming back, right? Uh, Jesus Christ is going to raise everybody, some to corruption and some to everlasting life. Um, in blessedness. And so that goes against the Greek philosophies here. Uh, continuous pain does not last long in the body. On the contrary, pain, if extreme, is present a short time. And even that degree of pain, which barely outweighs pleasure in the body, does not last for many days together. Illnesses of long duration even permit of an excess of pleasure over pain in the body. And I have no idea if this man has ever known anybody in pain, because that doesn't even strike me as, you know, observably um, something that you could say. Um, with any sincerity, if you know people who are in constant chronic pain. So anyway, those are the first four points of, and the most important points of Epicurean philosophy. And now you're going to understand then something of what Calvin is going to speak of. In contrast, the effect of our knowledge rather ought to be first to teach us reverence and fear. You see that completely opposed to the Epicureans. And secondly, to induce us under its guidance and teaching to ask every good thing from him, and when it is received, ascribe it to him. Whereas the Epicurean, right, is, is, is pursuing pleasure apart from God, right? It's find pleasure and pursue it. But if you had true knowledge, you would fear God first, and secondly, under the fear and reverence of God, to ask every good thing from him, and when it is received, ascribe it to him. So I guess the question could be, what uh, can Orthodox Christians do theology as the philosophers do? If you took this, right, forget Epicurus for a moment and just talk about the effect of our knowledge uh, or science or philosophy. Can Orthodox Christians do theology uh, in opposition to what Calvin is teaching here? 
Christians. Can they actually do what he's saying don't do? No, because any any study you have should be ascribed to God. Yeah. Or if they don't, you wouldn't be a Christian. Mm. Can, can Christians study the Lord without reverence and fear? Sure. They shouldn't. Not sure. Not worth it. You go back to the first point that it induces. Mm. You have to be blind and deaf, not yeah. to respond. That's right. You can't truly study. You can't yeah. truly study him, but people do, right. sadly, right? right. Um, it's, just it's just philosophy at that point, right? And we can actually study God without reverence and fear, mm-hmm. right? Sort of like a frog to be dissected rather than uh, an object to be adored, right? And to be feared, uh, reverenced. And then if we had true theology, right, to ask every good thing from him and when received, ascribe it to him. Now, what was the aim of the Apostle Paul's doctrine, right? You look at the book of Romans. I think it's very helpful if you see how Paul does theology, right? After um, 10 chapters, almost 11 chapters, it concludes the end of the 11th chapter. What does he do after he's, he's meditated, right? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. And look at what he says, what what we're studying in the Institutes. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Ascribing all things to God, right? And so he's gone through 11 chapters in the book of Romans. Uh, really portraying the the doctrine of God in magnificent ways. And the end of it is doxology, worship and praise, and understanding that of him and through him and to him are all things, uh, to whom be glory forever. That's the end of our theology. All right. Now we are here, almost at an hour point. I think we can get through the rest of the slides. We'll see. Calvin asks, how can the idea of God enter your mind without instantly giving rise to the thought that since you are his workmanship, you are bound by the very law of creation to submit to his authority, that your life is due to him, that whatever you do ought to have reference to him? I think that that is a wonderful, wonderful way of of putting it, right? That if you are his workmanship, what does that obligate us to, right? Right, it, it obligates us by the very law of creation to submit to His authority. Right, uh, that our life is due to Him. Like everything that we have is His, and whatever you do ought to have reference to Him. So here's the next question. Right. So what follows from this is this is our operating manual, so to speak. Right. Our operating manual is you are God's creation. You ought to do what God has said. What follows from this if we are not submitting to God's authority in all things? Judgment, right? We are broken, you know. We are not operating as we ought to operate. And, um, you know, you can you can see here. If so, it undoubtedly follows that your life is sadly corrupted if it is not framed in obedience to him. Since his will, another wonderful phrase, his will ought to be the law of our lives, right? Uh, in other words, you're not following your own procedures, uh, as we saw in Acts 14, right? We're not walking in our own way or we ought not, uh, if we are, you're like a corrupt machine that has gone haywire and amok, right? 
Uh, you're a bit like an out of control airplane that refuses to follow the pilot's orders and will not only destroy itself, but also all those in the plane and all that it meets on the ground, right? That's what we are. We are just out of control. And we do deserve, as our brother said, judgment because our life is sadly corrupted if it is not framed in obedience to him because our creator's will ought to be the law of our lives. This is why, again, it's so vital to begin with our creation. On the other hand, your idea of his nature is not clear unless you acknowledge him to be the origin and fountain of all goodness. Hence would arise both confidence in him and a desire of cleaving to him did not the depravity of the human mind lead it away from the proper course of investigation. Again, this is his, you know, um, the way that he has phrased so much. He's so, um, uh, he's not verbose, right? It's that lucid brevity. But you could sit here thinking on these phrases for a very long time. If God is the fountain of all that is good, what ought we to do? Okay, yeah, we should ought to praise him for his goodness. So you're acknowledging him to be the origin and fountain of all goodness. And what arises from that? Gratitude. Gratitude, okay. Worship, worship of God. He's going to get to that, especially a little later. Um, you see here, confidence in him. What would arise is confidence in him and a desire of cleaving to him, right? Like if you actually thought he is the source of all good, that there's none good but God alone, what would be the only thing that would be reasonable for you to do is to be confident in him and his goodness, right? And never to doubt it. And second, you would always have a desire to cleave to him, the source of all good, right? Like these are just natural consequences, aren't they? Like if you really thought of God as the source and author of all that is good, that would drive you to God, is what Calvin is saying. And you would say, let me be with God, right? Let me be as close to God as possible. Let me walk in his paths. Let me be confident in God alone because he is the only good. And when men, you know, disappoint us, we would say, well, they're not God. God alone is good. And uh, we would have confidence and a desire of cleaving to him. But what is it that hinders us? Our sinful nature. And the way he puts it is the depravity of the human mind, right? Our depravity leads us away from God, right? Our depravity leads us away from him. And, um, and that's why our confidence is not in God. And that's why we don't cleave to God, right? Whatever it is that we have confidence in and we cleave to, that's first an idol. Second, that's where we believe we're going to find our goodness, right? Or good, I should say, right? And so that can be like we did with Psalm 111 on the Lord's Day. You can diagnose our condition very quickly this way, these diagnostic things. I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why Martin Lloyd-Jones was so powerful of a preacher. He was a physician and he would always diagnose the people of God this way, right? You can diagnose yourself this way. What do I cleave to? What do I desire to cleave to? Where do I find my confidence? And if so, and if it's not God, then I have an idol and that's why there is trouble. There's anxiety and so forth in my life. But first of all, the pious mind does not devise for itself any kind of God, but looks alone to the one true God, nor does it feign for him any character it pleases, but is contented to have him in the character in which he manifests himself, always guarding 
with the utmost diligences against transgressing his will and wandering with daring presumptions from the right path. What's the natural bent of our heart? Enmity. Enmity, yeah, absolutely. And uh, when the natural bent of the heart is enmity, what does the heart do? Because it knows there is a creator. What does the heart do when it doesn't want to acknowledge the true God? Make another idol. Make an idol. That's right. That's right. You know, um, what is it, though, that def defines the pious mind, the truly religious mind, according to Calvin? What's that? Fear of God. The fear of God. Okay. And what does the fear of God lead uh, the pious mind to do when it considers and has its conception of God? Okay. First table of the law. Yeah. To, to change, repent. To change, repent. Okay. Worship, worship, legitimate worship and alignment with God. Okay. So it finds, uh, as our brother is saying, it finds, it always looks for how God would define himself and what pleases him, right? Essentially. Um, anything else is idolatry. One of the worst things that we do, and I'm not going to say that this is not foreign to my, my thinking either, is that we often say, well, God must be like this, or, you know, God would never do this, or God would, you know, would, wouldn't have a care that I do this or that or the other thing, right? The pious mind doesn't do that. The pious mind goes to the scripture and says, well, what does God think? What is God? Who is God? What pleases him, right? It doesn't feign for him any character it pleases, right? That's the common thing. You go and you witness, you, you'd speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you, what, what do people say? Well, I, my God wouldn't do that, right? My God wouldn't judge people. Uh, my God would say love is love. All, you know, that's, this is what we do is we, we create idols, right? Like, who are we to speak for God, right? Like, unless God speaks, we're not to, we're to be silent. We're to cover our mouths uh, unless we find from God's own word who he is. We're contented. See, it's not only that we do that, but we're also contented to have him in the character in which he manifests himself. Yes, it, very much so, isn't it? How, it's maybe put some legs to that. Why is that a good fountain? Well, you know, we're to know the true God as he's revealed himself. And to worship him as he's desired to be worshipped mm. uh, and content ourselves with that because this is what he's he's revealed himself to us he's given for us how he wants to be worshipped why and how could we do anything else yeah you know, just like we if he is good and the only source of good mm. where, where else could we go and if he's desired that we commune with him and worship him what else could we do but do that in a way that he's what hope what blessedness what um you know could we find in any other way if we don't worship him how he has uh commanded us then how can we say we worship him mm. how can we say that he'll bless that and he'll he'll bless us he'll meet with us yeah yeah, and in fact, so that's very, very good. In fact, we ought not be content, right, is what Calvin is saying as well, until we have determined what God is and what God wants, right? But, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Ostentatious ceremonies and yeah, such. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's but that's what piety is, right? It, it, its concern is God, right? Its concern is the true God. And, and so that's where I think just 
and he opens the book this way, his institutes this way, is that we have to be concerned about who God is. And that's where we find our pleasure and our happiness is to be satisfied when we know who God is. He by whom God is thus known, perceiving how he governs all things, confides in him. So there's a there's a, a blessing that comes out of this, confiding in him as his guardian and protector and casts him entirely upon his faithfulness, perceiving him to be the source of every blessing. If he is in any strait or feels any want, he instantly recurs to his protection and trusts to his aid, persuaded that he is good and merciful, and he reclines upon him uh, with sure confidence and doubts not that in the divine clemency, a remedy will be provided for his every time of need. This is what is so wonderful about knowing God is good, right? What does the pious mind do in matters of want or distress? Runs to God as a child runs to his father, right? Runs to God. God is my guardian. God is my protector. God is the governor of all things. And I cast all my hopes on his faithfulness, seeing that because there is none good but God, God is the fountain of every blessing, right? And these just follow, you know, these are good and necessary consequences of everything that Calvin has had so far. So if we are in any strait or feel any want, the the pious mind instantly goes to God's protection and trusts in his aid, persuaded that he is good and merciful. In fact, the only one who is, and he reclines upon him with sure confidence and doubts not that in the divine clemency, a remedy will be provided. Exactly, exactly. That's right. Um, yeah, somebody's. I was going to say again, again, back to your your sermon, Pastor, that all his works are good, no matter what we're going through. All his works are good. Mm-hmm. Amen. Uh, he continues there and says, acknowledging him as his father and his Lord, he considers himself bound to have respect to his authority in all things to reverence his majesty, aim at the advancement of his glory and obey his commands. Regarding him as a just judge, armed with severity to punish crimes, he keeps the judgment seat always in his view. So what does the pious mind do in matters uh, relating to God's authority, especially knowing God is the authority? Yeah. Yeah, takes it seriously, right? Yeah, he is. Did somebody have something online? I may have missed. Bring all, bring all thoughts captive to Christ. Hmm. Okay. Yes. Um, having that respect, reverence, and advancement of his glory. I think this is so wonderful, right? Is that the life that we live, right, is lived for the glory of God, right? It's for his advancement, not our advancement, right? If we see him as the source of all good and that he is, uh, just and the judge and the governor of all things, right? What is it that we owe him? We owe him the advance and increase of his glory. And we always regard him as a judge, uh, punishing crimes. You know, this is what's wonderful. I'm I'm skipping ahead, obviously, but we we remember that even when we remember the gospel, that, that God, right, can be just and the justifier of them that have faith in Christ, because he has never released his justice but he had to pour it out on Jesus. What's that? By no means will he acquit the guilty, right? And so this is why the son of God suffers in our place because he is just. And so that brings us the fear of God. 
Standing in awe of it, the judgment seat, he curbs himself and fears to provoke his anger. But look at how pastoral Calvin is here. Nevertheless, he is not so terrified by an apprehension of judgment as to wish he could withdraw himself, even if the means of escape lay before him. Nay, he embraces him not less as the avenger of wickedness than as the rewarder of the righteous, because he perceives that it equally appertains to his glory to store up punishment for the one and eternal life for the other. Besides, it is not the mere fear of punishment. This is so key for our piety that restrains him from sin, loving and revering God as his father, honoring and obeying him as his master. And this was such a beautiful phrase. I, I want to memorize it. Although there were no hell, he would revolt at the very idea of offending him. That's where the Christian's heart goes, right? This is what defines the heart of the pious Christian, right? is that he wants to honor and obey his master, that even if there was no punishment, he would despise the idea of offending God, right? I used a picture of a dog there, and I think there's some dog lovers among us, but there are two kinds of dogs, right? There's a, because they have two different kinds of masters. One kind of dog cowers in fear when the master raises his hand, right? And then goes and it whines because it, it is afraid that the hand's about to strike him. And the other one does it out of love and adoration and obedience, right? He follows his master. He knows his master's voice because his master is good to him. And we have to see God as good to us and uh, the fountain of all that is good. And we wait on God as this dog, the full picture is showing him waiting for a treat from his master. But we wait on the goodness of God as this dog does, and we don't cower trembling in fear from God if we are believers, right? We look to God. Uh, our dog, I was just thinking of our dog, you know, one of the few things that he does really well is that if you have a treat for him and you tell him to wait, he will wait forever until you tell him to go get it. And that, I think, is just, to me, has always been a wonderful picture of what my obedience to God ought to be like when I'm waiting on any good thing from him, right? Is that I would just sit there and wait until the Lord gives me a blessing. And so that ought to be our heart to God. And I'll have to go a little bit further uh, quickly because we are uh, getting short on time here. Such as pure and genuine religion. Here's a wonderful phrase, confidence in God coupled with serious fear. That's a, that's a wonderful thing, right? Confidence in God coupled with serious fear, meaning reverence. And this is what he calls pure and genera, genuine religion. Uh, what's the tension there you might, you might face? And how do you resolve it? Confidence in God coupled with serious fear. Confidence and fear? I don't know. You don't know? Okay. That's, that's... <laughs> That's fair. Looking unto Christ. Hmm. Looking under unto Christ, right? Um, confidence that you see what you deserve in Christ. That strikes a serious fear, but you have confidence because Christ was judged. Hmm. That your fear is not slavish. It's not that cowering fear. Yeah. But the fear of a father who loved you. He took your elder brother and smote him for your, your sake. Yeah, yeah, amen, amen. And uh, so that this reverence of God, this fear of God, that you know God did not spare His own Son for us, right, but delivered Him up for us all, right. That's that that tension resolved. How can the fear 
Yeah. Here, probably into the year of the last description. Uh, yeah, there. Or a fear of hell, for example. Yeah, so the, the Christian's fear is not really a fear of hell. It's a fear of offending God, our Father, who is worthy of being honored, right? He is uh, like the fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, right? He is our governor. He is our master. He is good. And, you know, we have to have a healthy reverence for him, right? Like what happens when you think of Jesus Christ, right? In the book of the Revelation, when John, the apostle who leaned on his bosom at the Lord's Supper meets him in glory, what does he do? Falls on his face, right? As though he were dead before him, right? Because he is so glorious and so majestic and he is so much greater than us, right? That we ought to have that healthy reverence and awe for him. And, uh, and so we would never reduce him, even our savior to our level, right? He's always the master. He's always greater than us. And really our glory is found that he embraces us, right? That such a one so radiant and glorious is that. Yeah. 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 And he gives us the right to lean on him and, and such, right? But we know him and even greater still are known by him. Yeah, that's how the Look it up and let us know. Um, but, but, uh, um, but yeah, so I don't know. I hope that's helpful. All right. Okay. So here's where this fear leads fear, which both includes in it willing reverence and brings along with it such legitimate worship as is prescribed by the law. And it ought to be more carefully considered that all men promiscuously do homage to God, but very few truly reverence him. On all hands, there is abundance of ostentatious ceremonies, but sincerity of heart is rare. Okay, so here's a, a question. What is the distinction between all men even promiscuously doing homage to God and true reverence? And can you find some examples in the Bible, maybe? When Paul, you know, when Paul before he was converted, he uh, all this, all this, all these works like he was doing the law, mm. but he wasn't actually reverencing God. He wasn't reverencing God, right? Yeah, and so you see that Pharisee of Pharisees, and so the Pharisees are a great example of that, right? They, uh, that's you, you had the perfect example there. So. Um, that's exactly right. There's all this, they promiscuously do homage to God, right? And even Jesus said, they think they'll be heard for their many words and things like that, right? Oh, even those who will come to, to him, right, on that last day, did I not do such and such in your name, cast out demons and so on? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you, right? You worker of iniquity. And that's where, again, we have this idea of legitimate worship as prescribed by the law. And we see that all men in some way do homage to God, but very few truly reverence him. Um, this goes back to what our brother was speaking about. If we really had a care for to be content by what God wants, right, then we would rest in understanding what the Lord wants. On all hands, there is abundance of ostentatious ceremonies, but sincerity of heart is rare. Um, what examples might you have in the visible church of ostentatious ceremonies? Rome. Rome, yeah. Well, if you want to call that the church. Yeah, yeah, I think you can. Um, 
they yeah they have ceremony after ceremonies after ceremonies creating sacraments and parading even you know this piece of bread that they claim is the the body of christ right but is there sincerity of heart in any of those things no right uh there really isn't and uh you know even to you know you think about a lot of times you don't even have to go to rome but you can go to protestant churches who want to have this show of worship right um, whether it's the bands or it's even big choirs, right, that'll put on a performance, right? Um, you know, again, not saying that these aren't true believers, but there is a, an ease that we have with ostentatious ceremonies. But what is really hard is sincerity of heart. And that can even go to us, right? You can sing the Psalms, but unless your heart is in it, right, then uh, the question is, are we just doing it as a ceremony, right? So it doesn't preclude even psalm singers, right, from this kind of chastisement from the Lord. Uh, even when, you know, you think about when the Lord prescribed fasting, but in those years, he asked them, did you do it for me? Did you do it for me? Right? In the exile. And so we can do homage to God, but we might not do it from the heart. How could we be challenged by this practically in our own lives? Mm, but our heart being far from him, right? Um, and that's something that all of us can be guilty of. Even when we think of our daily Bible readings and stuff, right? We can just go to it and, and say, well, you know, and boys and girls, you can think of this. Your, your parents might expect you to do it and you might just do it because of them or they're looking, right? But what's the big problem? You leave your parents' house and then you go and you don't pick up your Bible ever again because it was just a ceremony, right? Uh, and the same thing when we do pick up our Bible, even if going to a secret place, it's like, well, I'm on the reading plan and I've got to get through this. So I, I really don't, it's not really about communion with God. There's lots of ways that we can be into the ceremonies, um, but not have sincerity of heart. So that kind of wraps the end of, of this chapter. Um, next time we will cover natural theology. Uh, he will speak of what theologians call the census divinitatis. That's a sense of the divine that all men have, that there exists in the human minds, and indeed by natural instinct, some sense of deity we hold beyond dispute. And we'll consider that next time. So I'll just leave that there. Any other thoughts on chapter two as we conclude our time? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and even going to heaven is not necessarily the point either. It is, but it's it's loving God. Yes, that's right. You know, where's what's that Rutherford quote that so many of us love? My, oh, he's my heart is not here. He's run away. He's run away to heaven. What's that? He has run away to heaven with it. Yeah, and you know, uh, heaven would oh, be hell without Christ. Without Christ, right? Heaven would be hell to me. Um, and that's really what the Christian adores God. The Christian just wants to be with God. Um, in, in thy presence is fullness of joy forever, right? And uh, at your right hands are pleasures evermore. You know, that's where the Christian finds his satisfaction, not escaping hell, but coming to God. That's why we have Christ the mediator, so that we can come to God through him. Right? That's where we find our blessedness and our satisfaction. Um, because, um, yeah, heaven is where Christ is, as so many have said.
All right. Next time, book one, chapter three, the knowledge of God naturally implanted in the mind. That's that sense of the divine that all men have. Sadly, um, or maybe not sadly, uh, our family will be coming from out of town at the next regular meeting date. So the next meeting will be a month away, March 7th. And I'll send that up. I'll be at a, a, a communion season in Phoenix. So. All right. Anything else before we wrap up with prayer? Pastor, I just want to thank you again. Um, we're April and I are so appreciative of this because we can't make it so far away. So we're totally grateful for this and thank God for it. Well, thank you, brother. Thank you for your encouragement. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, we'll we'll work on scheduling then. There might be a conflict. Okay. We'll let you guys know. All right. Well, with that, then let's uh, thank the Lord, who is the fountain of every blessedness. Father in heaven, if only we had impressed on our hearts more often that God is good and does good, does good to all. Father, how convicting this would be for us and how we would seek you for every good thing. So, Lord, help us to remember that God alone is good. And God alone can give us what is good. And so help us to have our confidence in God. And all the more when we know God, not just as our creator, but our blessed redeemer in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a thing it is that we might say that those who have seen Jesus have seen the Father. And so we thank you for the goodness of God that is manifest in, uh, in human flesh, even in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you that we can grow, come very near to God through him. And that we might find all of our blessedness uh, in God through Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are good. We thank you for that. And we don't often say it, Father. So hear it from us tonight that you are good and we thank you for it. Would you bless us all by giving us a greater desire for you, Father? That we would desire to be where Jesus is. That we would all look to where our life is hid with Christ above. And that we would have a heavenly conversation that our citizenship would be seen as though in heaven we pray this father that we would better uh, glorify you and enjoy you for this we confess and believe is our chief end may you be glorified by our study we pray and ask in jesus name amen